Welcome to the Landmark Apostolic Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and brings impact to your life. Enjoy the message. I'll just get right into the lesson. And my lesson is actually, I titled this, The Paradox of Christian Living. The Paradox of Christian Living. And I'll start off with two uh, sections of scripture. The first one is John 17, 14 through 16. And when you're there, you can say amen. Okay. So starting off, we have, this is Jesus is praying, and he's about to go to the cross, but he's praying a prayer for his disciples. And he starts off with an interesting way of putting it. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. And this is a key point I'm going, that I'm going to work with. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. <clears throat> so that's the first one. The second uh, portion of scripture is Romans 12.2. And with that, he says, and be, Paul is speaking to the Romans, and he is telling them, be, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so with that, that's actually what this point is. You will hear the phrase people have said, replying to Christians, that we are in the world, but not of the world. That's actually nowhere in scripture, but that principle is what these uh, two verses actually lay out. Because Jesus said, I don't want you to take them out of the world. He says, but at the same time, Paul is telling us, you know, you're in the world, but don't be, you have to be transformed. Don't be conformed. Don't be, and when he says conformed, he's saying, don't let it fit you into its mold. That's basically what he's saying. If you took it literally, he's saying, do not let them form you into its mold. So that, and so the question is, that's a paradox. To be in the world, but not of the world. That's a paradox. How do you do that? I mean, practically, how do you work that out? Because that's a, it's a contradiction of sorts. Uh, but that's how, that's the intriguing thing of how it works out. And I would say there's probably three things. Uh, but first you have, I will have to explain this. In the world, we get up every morning, you go to work, you know, you have prearranged commitments, you're juggling all these different things, you're in the world, you're, you're just living life, you're going through daily life. So the question is, what, how are we supposed to know when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and when we're not supposed to be doing? Because most of the time, we're just going through our daily lives. What, what are we doing? And, he's actually, and it's intriguing that we have to stop and think. So many times we're so busy going through our daily routines, we don't realize what we're doing. You can easily get distracted by just everyday little things, and you can fall into a way of thinking without, without even realizing it. It's small. It's subtle. So we have to live in this present world. And I would just have three different actions we could take that probably help us play this out of how we are supposed to be in the world, not of the world. The first one is that we, as Christians, 
We're supposed to be a living sign of God's covenant in a world that for the most part does not authentically know the message of Christ. You are to be a living sign by speaking and living out the truth that uh, the truth manifest in what God has revealed to us. That's what we're, we are to be the salt of the earth. Jesus said, you know, you are the salt of the earth. Now, most likely a lot of people think of that as, oh, that's for preserving. Well, it's intriguing. Back in Leviticus 2.13, God said, every meat offering you have, you are to season it with the salt of the covenant. You are to do that with everything as a sign of the covenant of me with you. So it's intriguing that when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, you could, you could take it that way. Because every time you had a sacrifice, you had to have that salt of the covenant on it. As a sign of the covenant of, of between the nation and God. And this time it's between us and the world. You have to be a living sign. You have to become the message of Christ. And the problem is, if you, if you talk about it, it doesn't mean anything. People don't care about what you talk about. They care, do you live it? Because now, nowadays, nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's the, and it's intriguing that you have to realize, well, why doesn't God just come down and talk? Well, here's the thing. God, throughout all of his time in the Bible, you have to re- realize that he rarely ever did something in a he rarely acts in a direct and transcendent fashion. Very few times would he speak in an audible voice. Most of the time, he, instead, he always chose a human instrument to go and carry out the work. That's why he told Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell them, let my people go. That's why he would send the prophets. He would very rarely, he would send somebody to do it. And that's why Moses, well, why can't you just send somebody else? And he says, no, I'm asking you to go and do it. So we have to, we cannot shirk our responsibility. It's a, but the one thing is, and I remember Brother Terry Warren, he, uh, one time in one of his messages, he said that the best lessons aren't taught, they're lived. They're not taught, they're lived. No, if you, if you don't, if you say it, but you don't live it, nobody is going to respect you for that. They probably wouldn't respect you if you did. But at the same time, you are to be a living sign for them, no matter what they say. Because it, either way, it's not going to matter. You still are given that job to be a living sign. So another way I would say it, an analogy I, I found is that we're like a boat. Christians are like a boat. A boat is not designed to be on land. It doesn't work on land. There's one example, though. Sometime, and this is just zany, they actually, one time out in the plains of Nebraska River, near the Old West, they developed these uh, giant boats that actually would go on wind. Why? Maybe just because they were bored and they were fun, or they just maybe just were at the wrong place. But that actually did happen. But either way, that defeats the point. A boat is not designed to work on land. It's designed to work on water. So that, and so that's the one thing. The boat's on land. It's made to float on water. It's designed to be out and on the water. But there's one important place the water is not, and the boat are not supposed to be at the same time. The water is not supposed to get in the boat. 
it does, it's not designed to have water in it. It's designed to be on it. And it's designed to be out on the water, around water, but it's not designed to have water in it. So if you do, the boat sinks. That's how basically we as Christians are. God has designed us to go out and be in the world. But the problem is he does not want us to have the water of the world in us. If it doesn't, it destroys the function. The boat is meant to be out on the water. You are meant to be out in the world, but you're not supposed to be of it. You're not supposed to get it in you because that would defeat the purpose of the design of what the boat's for. So, because it's against the design. So that's the first point. The second point of what we're, of how we can apply this is you, Jesus would say, you know, you are the light of the world. And there was a, there's a theologian I read. He was a French theologian uh, and sociologist. And I like how he put this in a very intriguing way. He said, the world is largely dominated by illusions and idol worship. He says, whenever you have, the, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. He says, that's meant to dispel idolatry, to show it for what it is. He says, light in the biblical sense always includes good works, which allow these idols and illusions to be seen for what they really are. So that's the, and it's intriguing. Why do you think Isaiah specifically said, and this isn't in my notes, but it goes with this. Isaiah specifically said that God told him, I want you to go and you tell these people, have eyes but don't see, have ears but don't hear, have mouths but don't, but don't speak. Now, a lot of people think, that's a, why would you tell me to go? He said, I want you to go and preach to these people. What do you want me to tell them? The first thing he wanted him to tell them, have eyes don't speak, and that don't see, ears that don't hear, and mouths and don't speak. That's completely against what he's trying to do. That's an opposite. It's because, for one thing, even though it doesn't say it, he's, he's referring specifically to the sin of idolatry. When they made these graven images, they made eyes for them, but they themselves couldn't see. The eyes themselves are fake. They, had, they made ears for them, but they couldn't hear. Those idols couldn't hear. They made mouths for these idols, but those mouths couldn't speak. He says, become like what you worship. And that's a key thing. Anytime you hear that, those phrases in the Bible, specifically talking about eyes that don't hear, let them, their hearts be darkened, it, in the background, it's referring to idol worship. And, what, and it's a key theme throughout the rest of the Bible. You'll see you become like what you worship. And that's a very intriguing thing. Now, the intriguing thing about today's world is that the idols today are not so much material. They're not so much graven images. They're more abstract. And that's makes, that makes them a little bit more dangerous, a little bit more subtle. You don't even realize how you're, we fit into that. And so what I would say, and when I say it, uh, more abstract. Let me give you an example. In our society, in, today, in America, we worship a few things. One thing that we worship and you don't think about, you say, oh, this isn't harmless. We worship efficiency. We want everything quick. You're sitting in uh, the drive-thru at McDonald's, and if they don't get that order out quickly, you, you're just mad. You, you, it makes you impatient. We think our time is our valuable. Our time is limited. We, because we think Everything 
in systems. In we think of everything has to have a purpose, even people. And the problem is when you it, at first there's nothing wrong with efficiency in of itself. It's whenever it dominates everything, and where it gets into everything and it makes every if it makes you a number. And that's that's what we have. And so, if you're confused, I'm I'm going somewhere with this. You see, efficiency always involves improving what we're doing, trying to find a quicker, a better way of doing something. Here's a good question: Why? You ever stop and ask yourself, why do we are we improving everything? What's the end goal? What what's the end goal? Okay, well we need to do this. Why? Well, to to get to make this better, we need to make this run faster. Why? Well, well, to get this out quicker. Why? What's the end goal? And so we think, well, we need to have it efficient. Why? Because, and you say, well, it's necessary. Well, and that's the other part of the thing. We, it's self-justifying. It becomes self-justifying. We are trying to improve society. Well, first of all, what does that even mean? What, what do you mean by that? The thinking, because it becomes circular. And because whenever it becomes necessary, it basically it leaves no other choices. When somebody says, well, it's necessary, you instantly accept it, and you are basically locked in for that. You don't think about it. We like simple solutions. And we don't want we don't want to think about something. We want a quick solution, A or B. We do not want to stop. We don't want to contemplate it, and that's dangerous. It's it's a it's a trap. And so that's and where it goes through is this: if everything has to have a purpose, even people, if you are not contributing to society, what happens is when we make everything have to have a purpose. Anything that doesn't look like it has a purpose becomes, quote, unquote, dead weight. A lot of people would look at what we're doing here today and we're thinking this is a waste of time because they judge it by that standard. If it doesn't look like it has a purpose, get rid of it. If it looks like it's not contributing, get rid of it. If it looks like it's not uh, working, if it's not succeeding, if it's not producing, get rid of it. It's worthless. That's a lie. It's basic appearances. And so that's why it's dehumanizing. You can look at people. It, it, the problem is it could make you look at people like that. There's people that probably are homeless that are they're of no concern of themselves that probably just fell on that. And a lot of people will look at that and think, there's our tax. Ah, that's a waste of our tax dollars right there. You hear that phrase? They're a waste. It's whenever you've quantified them down to a number. You dehumanize them. You make, the, you make their worth based on what they can do for society at large. Instead of them being somebody that Christ died for, their value is based on what they can do for me. And if they're not doing something for me, that's dangerous. It's a small, subtle way of thinking. But if you really wanted to take it to the extreme, that's what we fall into. It's a small, subtle thing. And so if you don't want to dehumanize people, but we have to also realize that your value is also not based 
on what you do. Because this is another thing that will happen. Because if we are only valued by what we can do for everybody else, what's the first thing whenever you're talking to someone? Usually when you're talking to somebody in conversation, the first thing that comes up that you ask, so what job do you do? What do you do? Where you work? Um, usually we don't. We can't think of it. Usually it's either that or how's the weather? <laughs> yeah, those are, those are usually the two things for small talk. I, I've never really found them very interesting. But uh, <laughs> but that's but that's what you have to go with because those are the first two things that you can come to mind. Well, how's the weather? And hey, how's, how's the job? Uh, how's the wife and kids? Or if not wife and kids, hey, how's the dog? <laughs> Oh, the dog died. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. How's the cat? <laughs> Eaten by the dog. <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Just to move. Well, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> but you, yeah, usually we'll ask, "What's your job? Why? Why do you think we do that?" It's not just because that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. Why is that the first thing that comes to mind? It's because that's what we do to define ourselves. So, and so the problem with that is if your worth as an individual is solely by what you can do for your job or what you produce for your job, if it's solely that and not your value as a Christian for who we are in Christ, that's a problem. Because a lot of people, if they lose their job, then they go into depression because that's all where their value had, had been because they based their worth on what they did, and that that's all it was. And the problem is then their jobs that don't need you anymore, and they're no longer valuable, and they threw them away. That's the problem if you take efficiency to the extreme. If, and again, I'm not saying efficiency. You still have to go and you still have to work. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying how we view it. If that becomes the end all of everything, it's a problem. And that's what this world does. And the reason this world does that is because once you take God out of the equation, people just become things to be used. Yeah. Whenever you take that out, you, uh, it can lead to that. In fact, I could actually say this, that every society that has put humanity as the pedestal of everything has devalued humanity whenever they did it. Because people say, why are you doing that? Oh, we're doing it for humanity, whatever that means. Because you can apply that to anything. You can use that to justify anything. And so the problem with efficiency is that it becomes an idol. That thinking in and of itself, that dogma, that ideology, that becomes the idol. It's abstract. The idols of today are more abstract than material. And the problem is you become like what you worship. If you worship efficiency, you'll start to become heartless. You'll start to become, if this doesn't work out, if this doesn't work for me. And that's not very good. You become selfish. It's not that it's bad. It's that you have to put it in its proper place. And, that, and not inside you. So the problem we also have 
that's why Paul in Romans 2, he's, whenever he says be not conformed, what he's saying is don't, be, don't take on the customs, don't take on the habits or the thinking of the society of the world you live in. Again, don't let it fit you into its mold. And I've already gone through the, uh, the example of efficiency, basically. And because that shows you that efficiency does not recognize morality. Because morality would tell you, this isn't right. Efficiency says, can it produce a result? And then you say, yeah, but it's not right. Who cares? I want the result. It will run right over morality if, you, if it gave itself the chance. Luckily, we have laws that prohibit that. But if it really did, that's what it would do. So, and so in reality, I've said ends and means or an end. There's, the problem is today, everything is just a means for another means. There's no end in sight. Whenever I, you know, whenever I ask, well, why, why you need to improve that? Well, well, because, okay, why? Well, well, for humanity. Well, that's basically what you've done is you've put that far in the future. The end goal is far in the future. We're doing it to improve humanity. We're doing it to get, make more money. How much money? Give me, an, give me the amount. Well, well, more money. No, I asked how much. Whenever you, you set a goal that can never be attained, that's what we do. We're trying to constantly improve society. We're trying to reach some pinnacle. That's basically kind of like what they did with the Tower of Babel. They said, you know, let's build a tower to heaven. It's, we, we start to worship our own judgments, our own efforts. And the problem is we take God out of it. We said, we don't need God. We can do this ourselves. We can improve ourselves. We can do all this. We have all this. Why do we need God? You eventually, you start to worship yourself what we can do. And it's intriguing because that's actually what uh, happened with Eve. It's whenever you set, you make it to where Satan didn't really convince her the wholeheartedly. He basically, she was still hesitant and he just made her look at the app, at that fruit. It wasn't that, we, just, we don't know what it was, just a fruit. And it's intriguing what Genesis 3.6 says about it, it's, it says, so when the woman saw, saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Satan used the obvious fact as a me of, of means of persuading her. She was still not convinced, but he used that obvious fact. Oh, look, it's good. It's good for food. It's good for it's it's gonna it's gonna make you wise. It's wise, it's pleasant to the eye. He used the obvious thing there. And people will say, Well, why are you doing this? We need to. She supplied the own reasoning. He just basically pushed her and let her thinking go there. That's why you got to be careful. What we think, you, you can think you're doing the will of God, 
but that doesn't mean like, that's what God wants, that you could probably be doing what the world is doing because you're fitting in with it without you realizing it. It's subtle. It's subtle. So by doing this, whenever, so by doing that, you take God out of the equation and we start to think that we are the ones in charge. And we, we think, oh, we don't need God to save us. We don't need God to help us. We can do this. So again, by doing that, you're wor you worship your own abilities and view that you don't need God. And so that's where, again, you if you do that, you will eventually devalue people for who Christ died. Because if it's all about humanity, whatever helps humanity, at the same time, you can devalue humanity. Because if they're not helping humanity, oh, there it is. That's a dangerous thing to do. In fact, you become what you worship. In fact, that's actually why Paul, in Romans 1, 2, 1 and 2, is actually a rebuke of idolatry. And you know why? Because he's compared Romans 1 and 2, Paul is actually comparing something he wrote, wrote earlier in Romans, and you don't realize it. In Romans, uh, actually 1, 24 through 25, verse 28, and I'll read this just to kind of get the point. In Romans 1, 24 through 25, Paul says, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to, and this is one of the keys, dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In verse 28, 128, he says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. That's in verse chapter 1, 24 through 25 and 28. And then in Romans 12, 1 through 2, he flips it because he's showing what the actual true worship is supposed to be. That's why he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Whenever he says, I present your bodies, he's contrasting that. He says, they, God gave them over to uncleanness to, in the lust of the hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. He says, I ask that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. And that reasonable spiritual service, because that's what that implies. That re word reasonable in Greek implies a spiritual service. Because it says, that that's why Romans 1.25, he says, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served. Served the creature rather than the creature. And Paul's flipping that. He says, no, you are to present your bodies Instead of to each other, you are to present your body to God, which is your reasonable service. Instead of serving for other, for the sinful flesh of others in yourself, you are to present your whole body. It's your spiritual service unto God. And, and so then it goes on in Romans, chapter, Romans 12, 2. He says, and do not be conformed to this world 
but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind in the Lord. That's what it means. Whenever it says in your mind, he's referring in the spirit of God. And that is basically referring to whenever he says in Romans 1.25, and they and worshiped and served the creature. He says, no, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not worship this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he, and he says this, because he says, do, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. In Romans 1.28, that's a contrast. He says, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. Therefore, God gave them over to a debased mind. And they, so they didn't even know what to do. They couldn't even recognize what to, to recognize, what was good, what was bad. And that's why Paul says, when you become transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the reason you do that is because you are worshiping what you were designed to worship. You take on the reflection of what you worship. In fact, I'll go even further because that's not the only place that Paul makes that reference or makes that assumption. 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by, many, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ, an image would be used interchangeably, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts and given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, you have, because you are to be, it's like in a mirror. He said, some, another place we are like in a mirror, being ever transformed into the image of Christ. Why do you think earlier in Romans 8.28, Paul is saying, whom he predestined to be conformed Conformed to what? To the image of his son. The reason Christ came down and died is to reverse the effects. And now whenever you have his spirit inside, you are to be continually conformed to that. And that's and how does he do that? He does that by his spirit. The first Adam became, uh, uh, was a son of God. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. The reason he says the second Adam became a life-giving spirit. You have to reflect what you worship. And if you are not worshiping the right thing, you will take on the characteristics of that thing for evil or good. So we have to realize that it's no small matter. It's no small matter. That's why if you don't realize it, again, the things of the, that we worship today, the idols of today, they're not so material. They're abstract. It's very, very hard to do, and you got to be careful. 
So we cannot fall. And the other thing is that we fall into this trap that thinking that we can fix everything. And the problem is this whole world is under sin. You know what our job is? Our job is to make it bearable. We are here, whenever you're the light of the world, whenever you're the salt of the earth, our job is to make it bearable for people. We can't fix this world. That's whatever God will do. We are just to make to make it bearable until he comes. That's a, and that's a reasonable thing. That's a, that's attainable. That's attainable because any it, it's an error to believe that if we had any particular reform affected this order that God desires would come about. The problem is we can't do that. In fact, all I would say this, all solutions, all economic, all political and other achievements are temporary. If you did get them, they're going to fall apart within a generation. Anything you try to affect eventually is going to fall apart. You know why? Because everything is tainted by sin. Not that it's bad. It's just that it's eventually going to fail. It's only going to last for a short time. We put all our hope in this and that. Oh, if we just get this enacted, oh, if we just get this person elected, or if we just do this, if we just build this bridge, if we did that, it's all eventually going to fall apart. Anything you do is going to be temporary. Why? And so why would you put your faith and your, all your faith in the one thing that will, out, that will not outlast you? And that's why we're here. The only thing that's going to last is us getting people to heaven. That's our goal. All we're here to do is that's what's going to happen. We know that's what's going to happen. And all we're here to do is to take that, bring that, and let and make it today. We are to live as if in the day. We are here to show people the hope that is going to be ultimately revealed. They may not believe it, but that's what's going to happen. They can believe all these other things that aren't going to they are going to fall apart. That's the only true thing that's going to happen. So we have to do that. That's our calling. We are here to show people that this is a better way. Every, all of this is going to fall apart. All of this is going to pass away. But that's why God said, my word will never pass away. It's the only thing that's going to stand. So, you, so what I'm saying is don't be loyal to something that won't last. Because I like how this guy said this. He says, what the world calls loyalty is usually habit or obstinance. Be loyal to what matters. Just because the, uh, somebody will say one thing does not mean that you go along with everything they say. You only help them insofar as they are following the will of God. That means, and I like how this guy said it. You cannot rely on political solutions and you can't worship political systems because if we do, we are worshiping the assumptions that come with them. I'm not saying that they're bad. They can be used for God, but don't just fall into the trap of thinking everything they do is good. Only, only help them insofar that God has called you to help, but, if they, but don't accept their doctrine. Help them if they're, if they're trying to make the world a better place. Yes, do that. We're trying to make this world bearable, but, but realize that anything you do is going to be temporary, that we're only here to try to make the world bearable until he comes back. That's a reasonable thing to do.
We're not here to change the world. We're not here to fix the world. We're just here to make it bearable. So the, And so I'm coming to a close, and so if our music would come. And the third, this is the third and the final thing that we can do to live out this paradox to be in the world and not of the world. And this is the hardest thing. We have to be sheep among wolves. Because Jesus said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. He says, so therefore be as harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. And it's intriguing because you see, nobody wants to be a sheep. Nobody chooses to be the sheep. We all want to be wolves. We all want to be wolves. We want to dominate. We want to be powerful. We want, and so that's the other problem. We live in a society that is a survival of the fittest. Dog eat dog. That's another mindset, an idol that the world falls into is because we worship power. We want it. And God is saying, no, 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 which God usually opens the apple cart because he says, no, do the opposite. That doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't. But that's what I am telling you. And that it's intriguing. That's what works. That's why whenever God, he could have come down as a ruler, but he didn't. Because that's what they expected. And he upended their expectations. And he came down and he died and he completely flipped their expectations on its head and it worked. Instead of coming in power, he came in humility. He came in mercy. Because if he came and did what was supposed to happen, we would not have the chance of salvation. It's by doing what everybody didn't expect to happen that it worked. You, if you go, and that's why you would say, you know, love your enemies. If you love those who love you, what have you gained? You got to show mercy. And that, that doesn't mean everybody is going to do it to respond to you, but it means that you still give the chance. So you have to be sheep among wolves. We cannot embrace power and material success because that's what the world worships. He says they, they, they want to be successful and they want to be powerful, but it's intriguing that that's why in Revelation, why do you think he said to the church, he says, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, naked, you're material rich, materially rich, but spiritually you're poor. Spiritually you're destitute. He said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you, you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, be know what you're looking at, you're, you're blind. You can think you're looking at it. You can think you're seeing everything clearly, but you're not looking at it with the right view. You're not looking at it with the right view. It's warped in here. Be transformed. So in closing, I just wanna say this. We do not, we are not here to control the world. We are, again, we are here to just make it bearable until he comes. 
without people filled with the Spirit of God to show people what patience, mercy, and goodness is, there can be no hope for humanity to cling to in this fallen world. That's why God sent us. He sends us out because we are to go to those people that have no hope, that are, that are crying for something, and then God is sending us to them. They may not look like how we think they're going to look like us. We may not originally like how they look, but God has sent us to them. So we are here not to be an institution. We are here to be a presence. Nothing less, nothing more. We are here to be a presence for God in this world. And that's all we're to be. Anything, if we try to go outside that bound, that's where we fall outside of our purview. That's, we are not doing what we are called to do. We are not to overstep that. And, and how do we do that? You, you have to pray and you have to be led by the Spirit of God to know where that is. Lord, what do you need me to do? Because sometimes it might seem contradictory, but we need to do that. You have to be led. And that's what will eventually make the difference. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those that give generously to this ministry. If you would like more information, please visit our website at landmarkapostolicchurch.net. But have a great day and God bless.